Thank you so much. I did change the title slightly. I would still talk about what I was planning to, to talk about, but I decided to find a common theme between what I was talking about yesterday and still hoping to cover some material that I was uh, unable to cover yesterday and tie it together with colloidal assembly and things that I uh, will describe today, hopefully. But we'll need to do it fast because I have a lot of materials to cover. So it would be very fast talking, but before I talk fast, I want to show actually the movie that didn't play yesterday, and I really hope that it's not done by Harvard because they were upset that this is what we've done to Harvard sign. And that was a demonstration of ability to have slippery surfaces that resist um, graffiti, and actually, again, doing it in such a way that you have, you see the difference between the regular surface and the surface that was turned into slippery material. So let me begin with actually showing a couple of examples of applications of these slippery surfaces. And uh, first that I want to desc describe is condensation on slippery asymmetric bumps. And the reason I decided to include it today is uh, twofold, at least twofold. One is that I want to convey a message that we're not trying to mimic just one organism. If there are lessons that can be taken from completely different organisms brought together and give us an interesting technology or interesting new material, this is exactly what we are doing. And in this particular case, I'll show you the combination of the ideas taken from desert beetle, from cacti, and pitcher plant. So the other uh, reason I wanted to show that is actually to mention to you that uh, it's not only about experiments, uh, pretty much every work, I'd say everything that we're uh, publishing, we accompany with theoretical modeling and understanding, to the best of our knowledge, uh, uh, the thermodynamic and kinetic uh, reasons for the systems to work or not to work. So the motivation here was for, uh, for the case of thinking about severe water scarcity problem. It's obvious, I don't want to go through all these details. Um, the lectures would be um, on the web, I guess, so the more detailed numbers can be read from these slides. So that was m first motivation, but the second one was something that I was surprised to understand that if we look at water in the atmosphere, and in particular in troposphere, it contains nearly six-fold amount of fresh water of all the river water. So there is a lot of it out there. So what we want to do is potentially to be able to collect this water very efficiently. And the way to think about it is, of course, to think about dew and uh, to collect water in that way, and we know why and how dew is forming on the surfaces. Um, but going crazy and thinking about Star Wars and this moisture vaporator, for those of you who have seen it, is uh, really the idea to, uh, for us to consider. So what is it that we want to do here? 
first, let's look at the liquid of history. If we think about uh, condensation of water on surfaces, if the surface is hydrophilic, you will form a film of condensing water. If the surface is hydrophobic, you would form droplets. It has been shown that this droplet type, dropwise condensation, is about 500% more effective um, in condensation than film-wise condensation. So what we want to think is how to um, really maximize this drop-wise condensation. And in particular, let's say, if we want to use it in heat exchanges so that to really uh, change the latent heat transfer. So the approach that we have is uh, designing these surfaces, but with two things in mind. And in fact, it's very important to understand that two things uh, that we want the system to do are opposite of each other, they're orthogonal. One, we want to um, increase nucleation of water and growth of water on the surface, but anything that induces water nucleation is also pinning for water. But we need to transport this water along the surface. So we need something that allows us both increase condensation, but also uh, allow a transport, and in particular direct, uh, directional transport. And we will do it by thinking about macroscopic um, and molecular and nano size ranges in our design, where we will use these bumps that we know of from the <coughs> desert beetle that have a higher probability of condensation of water and in particular growth of water to much larger droplets, then we will think about how to use asymmetry on, on the cacti with the ability of, um, of these surfaces, if they're turned into slippery surfaces, to move the material very fast. Thank you. So, first, let's start with the bumps. And there was a lot of discussions why and how bumps on the beetle work. Contradictory data, and I don't want to study the beetle myself, but what we were able to show, that it's not the chemistry, chemistry also can help, but it's not the chemistry, it's purely geometry of the bump uh, that can initiate much faster and much faster, much faster nucleation and much faster growth of these droplets. So we studied this system, we made these bumps in different materials just to show it's not materials related and uh, what we were able to show and what we are showing now. Here is a, a symmetrical bump. This is a region just next to it on the flat region and you could see that the size of the droplets nucleating on the same and growing on the same substrate, how much larger the droplets that are forming on the bump as compared to flat region nearby. And if you begin to study that, and in fact thinking about it in terms of fixed law and thinking about diffusion flux, and on the bump from different sides, you will see that irrespective of the chemistry of this bump, if you have an emerging uh, structure on the surface, the tips would nucleate and grow much larger droplets. But then they will be stuck there or 
they can then have fall off this bump in any direction. So what can we do if we think about directional, flood, uh, directional uh, transport of droplets? So if you look at the geometry of, the, of cacti, um, there is a certain way that this conical geometry affects the directional transport of droplets. So if we make this ramp, instead of a symmetrical bump, let's just change it, make it anisotropic in, in shape, and in particular, having this ramp very similar to this uh, cacti. What we really see, and if we think about energy of the droplets sitting on this um, ramp, depending where the position of this droplet, there is a minimum position where the energy is the lowest. What does that mean? It means that this droplet, let's say I'll put it now upside down against gravity and I'll also add slipperiness to this surface so that droplets are not sticky on the substrate. So now I'm taking lessons that we discussed yesterday from pitcher plant, and in particular making, let's say, aluminum substrates that then um, are uh, put in the boiling water, become structured aluminum uh, bumps and infiltrated with the lubricant. And then, now its bump is upside down, and take a look at these droplets. This is gravity going up because they're going into an um, area where the energy is the minimum energy for these droplets. So they actually can go up, again, gravity, and we can calculate the effect of gravitational field and the uh, capillary effect and how that affects the geometry, and based on that, calculate the most interesting and the most effective geometry for transport of these droplets. Here's another demonstration that this is up gravity, this is horizontally, you could see this droplet um, nucleated, growing, and moving um, in the direction of the same ramp as before, and then when it will grow to a large size, being picked up by gravity uh, field and collected somewhere else. The outcome of that is, in fact, that we can now have, just visually take a look at the same substrate and condensation taking place on a flat aluminum and this is already the aluminum that is hydrophobic, that is already 500% better than hydrophilic aluminum. But you could see very nice condensation and transport, directional transport of these droplets on the left side. Now these ramps are positioned in the right way, meaning that I'm actually taking advantage of the gravity field and um, uh, capillary field so that it moves the droplets in the same direction. And as these droplets move, they actually pick up more of condensed matter. And if uh, you look at what happens in these systems, in fact, just in this simple, very simple design, we have about 10 times more water collected at the bottom of, of, of these surfaces as the outcome of this combination of three approaches. 
we need bumps and the macroscopic level. We need on the microscopic level certain interesting design of the anisotropy of these bumps. And on the nanoscopic level, we need nanostructures to create slippery surfaces so that the, uh, you, the, the force needed for these droplets to move towards the collection side is minimized. Now, I will finish that part saying that I did mention all the uh, wonderful advantages of combina a combination of different approaches. Um, we do believe it can be used not only for water collection, but actually in phase change heat transfer applications where we demonstrated that if I put a gradient of temperature across a metallic pipe, and we know that uh, water supposed to nucleate more um, on the colder part of, of that pipe, but we put our structures on the opposite gradient, in the gradient in the opposite direction, and we show that just that geometry and using the approach that we developed, you can actually have results that go against um, uh, the unfavorable temperature gradient. So you can actually nucleate and grow your water at higher temperatures. You don't need to cool it uh, so down. So another example that I wanted to show is um, the ideas, and again with a little bit of uh, theoretical assessment and what we do there, uh, let's talk about uh, membranes and in particular not just about membranes but about gating mechanism. So you need a gate in your membrane for the liquids to go through, for the gas to go through. And I'm specifically going to talk about much larger scale uh, membranes, much larger scale pores, not molecular pores, but uh, pores on the level of 100 of nanometers or so. And then, of course, very simple demonstration that if you have a pore like that, um, gas, the temperature, uh, the pressure needed for gas to go is zero because gas will go through. It's not a molecular pore. For the liquid, it makes a meniscus. So for the meniscus to go through, it has to overcome capillary force and the pressure, critical pressure that is required is higher than zero. But let's say you are putting a lot of dirty liquid through. We do know that unfortunately these membranes get dirty and even if you get to the pressure that you need, uh, you contaminate your pore significantly. Now let's think about it in a little bit different way and let's imagine um, a system where your gate is a liquid. So let's call it a liquid gated pore so your porous substrate would carry a liquid inside. If this is the case, then whether it's gas or another liquid, to go through this membrane, you will have certain surface tension um, and uh, meniscus formed. And therefore, both for gas and the liquid, there would be a critical pressure required to move it through. You may consider it's a negative because now you need to apply pressure to move gas through, but you will see that as a lot of interesting thing can happen. But now, when the pressure is above this critical pressure, 
the gas will go through, we will design them in such a way that this liquid gate likes your, has very high affinity, very uh, using Van der Waals forces that keeps the liquid inside, just as it is in the slippery surfaces, which means that it will actually create a, a cover for your pore, so gas will go through, or liquid will go through without um, contamination of the, of the uh, membrane itself. What is also interesting, that is reversible, the moment the liquid or gas are through, the membrane is again closing the gate, and the liquid gate uh, is back in place. So one can calculate what is happening in this system, thinking about the fact that you are changing uh, the pressure in the, in the system in terms of um, Young's Laplace equation, but one has to think about this, uh, this uh, um, problem both macroscopically and microscopically. And macroscopically, you can use Darcy's law, and microscopically we would uh, consider it as flow through a pipe. And thinking about permeability, we will try to relate it to transmembrane pressure, and in particular to the um, flow that you have in your system. And what we can um, look at is using this approach, the pressure that is needed as a function of the flow rate for different pore sizes in your uh, membrane, or flow rate, but now for different interfacial tension for the liquids that you use, or you can go further and think about pore size uniformity, how that affects the ability to transport liquids through uh, the membrane. And the outcome of these studies is a couple of interesting things. First, we do see that uh, as compared to um, the regular porous membrane, where gas, if we look at the pressure required for gas to go through, is zero, there is non-zero pressure for gas to go through our membrane. So here it is shown in red. In gray, it's the same membrane without liquid gate. So there is a non-zero pressure for gas, and we can watch it. There is non-zero pressure for liquid, for liquid, of course, but it's lower in most cases. But we can design it to be either lower or higher. Uh, lower than the same membrane without liquid gate. As a pore size, just using, let's say, um, Teflon membranes with different pore sizes, we could see the, uh, the solid line is for liquid to go through, and the dashed one is for gas, and you could clearly see uh, the same phenomenon in all these cases. You can also play with surface tension, but very um, non-intuitive uh, result was we all expect that the pressure for gas to go through has to be lower than for liquid to go through. For gas, it's even zero in most normal membranes. However, you can design your system in such a way, depending on hydrophobicity or hydrophilicity of your components, that, and here is the example shown here, where the critical pressure for gas to go through is actually higher than critical pressure for the liquid. So you can let the liquid through, but not the gas. 
or any other way you want to play with this system. So there is a lot of ways to look at that and playing with the relative pressures in your um, design. And what I'm showing here is relief port that is separated by the membrane made with the gate liquid. And depending on the relative pressures, you can either have nothing going through the membrane and everything goes through this port the same way as before, or you can have only gas to go through and then pure liquid to come out on the other side, or to have both gas and liquid to go through the, um, the inlet separated with the membrane, but with different ratio of liquid and gas bubbles in it. And in this way to actually just simply by flow rate separate things all by pressure to separate anything you want. And in particular, here is an example of having a mixture of um, air, water and oil and separating it by just choosing the pressure in the system to see in the outlet first to have air through, then air and water, actually at this moment just water, and, and then oil and uh, separate the liquids this way. And another part that I mentioned, let's not forget that um, as liquid or gas goes through, it is now covered with your um, liquid gate, and this liquid gate would be chosen similar to the slippery surfaces, so it's non-fouling surface. So as a result of that, if we compare just regular uh, channel or this liquid uh, line channel, and we have here blood, proteins, particles, anything you put through, you could see clogging and absorption of all of these things on a regular channel and a clean channel when you use uh, uh, this approach. And moreover, if we simply look at potential energy saving due to the fact that you do not need to apply such a high pressure uh, due to contamination and also because the pressure for the liquid is actually now below the one um, for a regular membrane. Um, in the experiments that we've done, uh, we, we show that at least 50% of energy can be saved this way. Yet another example that I want to show is talking about blood that I showed you before. Blood has the ability to clot everywhere and it's very important. It's in the natural function. It has to clot to prevent all the blood coming off if we just cut ourselves. But unfortunately, um, it's, it's really about 50% of blood uh, clots are healthcare associated because, let's say, you would have um, something in your um, going to hospital and, and there's what is called hospital-acquired diseases and just the, the blood will clot in, uh, during different procedures. And it's pretty expensive, not to mention uh, that it is bad for our health. Yet another health-related part is, of course, infections. And infections are, again, many of them are associated with what is called nosocomial infections. These are the ones that are acquired uh, due, uh, through medical devices, and it's extremely common in, in uh, hospitals. 
So what can we do if now this is the idea for us to solve? And the way we'll look at that is, in fact, to compare slippery surface to just a regular surface. In this case, it's Teflon. And you could see this green. It's the bacterial film. It's uh, bacteria doesn't die, <coughs> but it has no ability to attach to the slippery surface. So when it was horizontal condition, it was growing somewhere. Um, but in fact, it's not attached at all. Even more so, if we look at different bacteria, E. coli, Staph aureus, uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, this one is even seven days in media. You could see, and I'm comparing, it's already to a very good material, I'm comparing to, uh, to the control, that is Teflon control, you have nearly 99% reduction in uh, bacterial accumulation on, on these surfaces. And in fact, it's probably more than 99%. <laughs> we are just trying to find the region where we at least can find one or two bacteria on our surfaces. So what happens then is that bacteria do not have the ability to attach. They do not see the underlying solid. So they probably go somewhere else, but definitely not attaching to the medical devices or to the surfaces that we create. And this can be done in many different ways. Here is an example of, of a PDMS. This one is slippery PDMS. This is just, this one is slippery PDMS. This is a regular PDMS. And it was uh, sitting in the gross, bacterial gross media. This is still transparent, no bacteria on it. The bar here exists, it's just very small. Bar here exists, it's again very small. You, you have about 80% biofilm coverage on regular PDMS and glass, and pretty much nothing on slippery PDMS. Same when we look at the exposure to blood on infused PDMS, the one that has slippery uh, properties, nothing on it, and really significant coagulation on a regular PDMS. You can do it inside the channels, and in this way to create uh, channels where, let's say, from blood transfusion, regular ones, would induce blood clotting, but the ones that are slippery are likely not to. And uh, the last example that I uh, want to show in this slippery surfaces part, just to show the breadth of thing and different criteria that one needs to consider, uh, will be application, medical application, um, in endoscopes. The reason I chose in endoscopes, and even more so I actually will show the results with bronchoscope, is that the requirements there uh, need to develop material with many, many characteristics. Not only that it's supposed to be antibacterial, antifouling, but it also has to have highly transparent properties. So the ability to make the surfaces transparent, and I mentioned before that by choosing the particle size on your structured surface, uh, you can actually create not just a transparent coating, but a, a coating that would have even anti-reflective uh, capabilities and therefore uh, give you very nice uh, optical performance. So here is bronchoscope. This is the size of the bronchoscope. Um, the camera here is actually very small. Camera is not the main part of the bronchoscope. The main part 
is occupied. The, almost all the real estate is occupied by the channels through which suction and irrigation takes place because it gets dirty immediately and you have to um, either irrigate to clean it up or su uh, use suction to clear the, your lens because otherwise your optic, uh, the vision would be impaired and the procedure re actually required to see what is going on in your body. So what we've done are experiments with um, endoscopes that were uh, comparing the regular one with the one that we turned into uh, where the lens was coated with the slippery coating. And first I want to show you the red line and the red line um, is uh, a regular endoscope. The first immersion in blood, so we're doing immersion in blood, imaging in this case just a chessboard uh, plate. And after one immersion, you see nothing. You just see your vision is 100% down, your vision filled. If you do it with a coated scope, well, my student was already very tired. 100 times didn't change anything and they didn't want to dip it anymore. So what is interesting though, there is a couple of examples shown here, is that not that you won't see sometimes a little bit of blood on the surface. You could see this oscillating behavior, but first of all, it doesn't cover entire field of view, but actually it would just slide off the vision field and it would be clear, completely clear, coming from that completely up again. So this is very interesting behavior, no, non-contaminating um, <coughs> behavior of these scopes. The next thing that we've done is going a little bit cl closer to, to nature. This is all in vitro. This is experiments that are done with explanted porcine lung. It doesn't have blood there, but it has a lot of mucus. And this, uh, surf, uh, this surfactant that they have, usually, and just looking on the regular scope, this is the airway of the actual uh, porcine lung. The moment you submerge it into this uh, um, surfactant, you see nothing. And uh, you, you really simply by, if you do it without uh, suction or irrigation, you see nothing even when you withdraw your uh, This is the example with our channel. So before submersion, after submersion, and after removing it completely from the system, you do not see, uh, change the view. We of course done the experiments was uh, uh, looking on the toxicity studies, we didn't see any, and therefore we decided to go directly to in vivo experiment and to perform bronchoscopy. Um, and in fact, the whole range of procedures, including biopsies um, on, a, on a, a porcine lungs. And the way we've done it is that left lung uh, was used for uh, bronchoscopy by regular bronchoscope and the right lung with the, uh, the one that was uh, modified with slippery coating on the same pig, on the same procedure, so that to remove some uh, introduction of uh, results that may relate to a, a different animal, a, a different condition. So what we've seen, and I was quite surprised to see that um, three biopsies were performed and uh, on, with a regular uh, scope, after biopsy is performed, it immediately you see nothing, and then you have to irrigate 
and then to use suction for sometimes two minutes or more because you cannot gain the visibility. On average, at least um, one minute would go for cleaning procedures on a regular scope, while on our scopes, in many cases, we didn't even need to clear the, the lens, and in other cases, we still didn't need to uh, clear it within a couple of seconds, um, the, let's say, blood uh, would come off um, the, uh, the surface. And it's really an amazing result, and I want to show you just a little bit of this actual procedure, and in particular, looking at extremely huge uh, bleeding that occurred, and here is our scope, looking at this bleeding, being exposed to blood, now even submerging it to blood and taking it out, and immediately you see everything, so blood is not affecting the visibility and the performance of this scope. So let's, with that, um, show you again a little bit more of things that one can play with, especially if we think about modeling of these systems. What if now we would think about dynamic fluid-infused materials? In particular, what if my porous network is actually elastic so that the pore sizes can be changed either through mechanical force, there are other ways to do it, uh, we discussed dynamic materials that change their shapes um, in, in, uh, earlier last week. But what that means, and if I now think about correlating the pressure change with evolution of this pore size, so evolution of the pore size is related to strain, Strain would be related to interfacial energy. And if this is the case, we can actually show that we can design materials that depending on the strain would be either slippery or would stop the droplets from, from moving. And since it is related to surface tension of the liquid that you use, we can have an interesting system where I can differentiate different liquids by the strain at which they begin to move or strain at which they stop. So examples shown here are octane, decane, and dodecane, and hexadecane. And you could see that as a sliding angle for these droplets, as a function of strain, you can, depending on the strain, you can make either one droplet to move or the other one and actually discriminate the droplets according to their to their surface tension. You can also look at that in terms of um, optical transmission. Since you are having now air coming into your porous network, your transmission would change as a function of viscosity, as a function of the surface tension, of the pore size, and so on. So you can have also dynamic material that not only changes its uh, uh, wetting properties, but also changing its optical properties in the sense of dynamic materials. And uh, the last application of that that I want to show is now not protecting from anything, but actually using it to create something. And the particular application is if we want to uh, create cell sheets, and the approaches now are very important because these days this therapeutics um, uh, is making uh, synthetic tissues for different parts of our bodies. And the problem with the existing approaches 
is that um, it's, for example, there is a thermal responsive systems where you have to change the temperature of the substrate to make the, the tissue detach from the interface because it has to attach to the interface in order to grow the system. So most of them have limitations of how to induce, after attachment, how to induce detachment. It's most of them are expensive or slow uh, for release. And here is the example of using this, let's call it switchable slippery surfaces. We first grow cells and they're now um, uh, labeled in blue. And now take a look how easy it is, is to take the uh, grown tissue from the, uh, from the substrate. Just simply on the piece of paper, you just put it on and you pick up your tissue. Same way as it's easy to take it out due to the fact that that moment the underlying substrate is tuned to be non-adhesive, um, uh, to become slippery, you can now place it on anywhere you want, wh whether it's a wound or just another substrate. And just to show how simple that is, you just the same piece of paper and you can transfer it uh, somewhere else where you want this tissue to appear. It's very similar to any other tissues that would grow. And with that, I do want to get to the subject of uh, chapter two and with a strange name of wicking, winking, and drinking, and you'll see why I say that. And the reason I do that is that mm, I want to talk about liquids and structured surfaces, but I also want to talk about structural color and colloidal assembly. And I'm sure that all of you know that opals uh, have their beautiful color, not due to pigment present, but due to the regularity of their structure, and in particular, having spheres of SiO2 packed in a regular manner, and depending on the little differences in either sizes or packing arrangement of these uh, spheres, you would have different colors appearing, and the colors are appearing due to interference of light, due to regularity of structure. Uh, not due to the chemical pigment um, in the present in the system. There are a lot of wonderful examples and actually advantages of structural color over chemical, let's call it chemical color or regular pigments. The reason, main one, I like the fact that they're non-bleaching, it doesn't change with time, but even probably more important that it's material almost independent. Uh, only certain molecules with conjugated bonds and so on will give you color as a chemical pigment. However, you can make structural color of, out of any material you want. You just have to regularly space it um, and in this way to have uh, the properties that you need. Um, so let's look again on the structural color and again biological systems and we study a lot of them and in particular I want to show uh, butterflies and seeds. Uh, these are uh, iridescent plant seed. And this beautiful blue color is coming from the very regular distance between um, in, in the cellular structure. 
and that's photonic color. That's a structural color. This nice patch of uh, Paridus sesostris butterfly, green one, is structural color. Black is not, but this part, here is the structure of this. This is absolutely amazing um, 3D uh, photonic crystal, which is opposite of, um, of opals. Opposite in a sense that opals is a collection of spheres. In this case, where spheres are supposed to be as empty spaces and only surrounding is it. So it's inverse opal structures that this butterfly is using to create this beautiful green color. So we were interested in making this inverse opal um, structures in synthetic materials. And what we've done, and honestly simply because we were probably not interested in long procedures, instead of the general approach, and the general approach would be the following. You would have a colloidal assembly of your sacrificial colloids assembling from, uh, from ethanol, let's say, from water, um, and it would be gone, and you will get assembly of your colloidal spheres on your substrate, and then you will need to infiltrate it with the material that will become the inverse opal structure, and then you need to burn your spheres or dissolve your spheres and in this way to get the inverse opal structure. What we decided to do, instead of these three steps that this would require, to have it in two steps, where the self-assembly takes place already from the um, soul gel precursor to the future matrix material. So instead of ethanol, for example, we would already have, in this particular case example, of silica precursor um, and TOS precursor in the system. You have to be very careful in the terms of concentration in the system so that kinetics of, of um, polycondensation is more or less aligned with the time required for the uh, spheres to self-assemble into crystal. And if you do that, the outcome is that not only that you skip one part of your procedure, but you can make very large single crystalline, this is colloidal film, it's just um, with pretty much no defect. You really need to spend time to find a defect in this structure. And just to compare it to uh, what uh, one can do with existing techniques. So if we look at the direct assembly, so we're now assembling colloidal particles out of um, solvent, and you could see that very locally, it's a very nicely packed, hexagonally packed um, crystal. However, the moment you go the little bit larger scale, you would see that it's highly cracked because there is capillarity, because there is a pressure developing in the system, and of course when it dries, it creates cracks. Um, now if I use this to infiltrate it with silica precursor, you actually create even more cracks, but also there is non-uniformity um, throughout the film because you have more silica on top than on bottom, in addition to that, often you create this overlayer of silica formed, and here it is, you can fill these cracks, some of them, with uh, silica now, but you actually create even more cracks in this system. So you cannot 
overcome that and create large areas um, materials. Scale bars on the bottom and scale bars on top are the same, and I'm just comparing what happens with the same system done by this assembly. But there is other advantages to this system. You can then use it if you want to make multi-layer colloidal assembly with different pore sizes. You would just assemble one, on top of that you can assemble the other one. You can also do it in channel and in this way create uh, another level of patterning of these colloidal crystals. You can also do it on a curved sub, uh, substrate and uh, uh, create interesting colloidal systems and uniform colloidal films. It doesn't have to be just structural color. One can add pigments to these, and in fact, most things in biology are using both structural color and pigments uh, to make an interesting optical effect. Uh, in some ways, one can say in the simple ways, I would say that pigments need structural colors to shine because this um, iridescence that would come from structural color and structural colors often need pigments to be expressed. In a sense, um, pigments to be purified, to give a very specific uh, appearance, a specific wavelengths in the system. So uh, we know that we can use gold nanoparticles as instead of organic pigments, as alternative inorganic pigment. It's been around for a very, very long time. But the important thing is actually absorbance of these particles. And what we are trying to do, simply speaking, is we want to purify the color that we can get through structural approaches. In particular, let's think that we would have a certain wavelengths uh, corresponding to, this is structural color and it would have a certain appearance. Um, now, the peak is supposedly giving a red color, but the contribution from the blue here gives it this uh, purplish appearance. What if I want red? So one way to do it is actually to add broadband uh, absorber, let's say carbon black. Carbon black absorbs everywhere, so it will reduce this absorption to nearly zero and this to nearly zero. This peak would be the only one present. You do get your red color, but it would be not as intense because you actually reduce intensity of your peak as well. Now, if you have a selective absorber uh, that would selectively absorb in certain wavelengths, but not others. So for the same system, only blue and green would be removed from your spectrum. So only this part would be uh, drawn down, but the intensity of the, of the red peak itself stays the same. You also purify your color, but you also get uh, quite high intensity. So this is approach that we use, and indeed we're able to make these inverse opal structures that depending on how much gold that we are now just adding as a third component of our self-assembling system. So now we are self-assembling not only sacrificial colloids with sole gel precursor, but also adding, let's say, gold nanoparticles or silver nanoparticles or other absorbers that together with this system would form the th uh, this 3D um, crystal and being able to 
affect only specific wavelengths and purify the color. And you could see that it goes from blue to purple to highly red, depending on what you add. You can make these, as I mentioned, on structured surfaces. And what that gives you is the ability to create um, bricks that you can use for paints, where paints are composed, let's say, from titanium uh, oxide particles. But now the bricks, the particles that are part of your paint are already colored bricks, so that you can have these that have their own color and then disperse in the medium. But, or you can do it in many different ways by adding pigments, not adding pigments, controlling the size of, of these, and yet another, you see my group is crazy about abbreviations. So we're making shards, and depending on how much gold or silver or other pigments we add from exactly the same system, and depending on the angle um, at which you look at it, we can make angle-independent, angle-dependent, and different interesting optical effects, because now even the bricks you form are structured. OK. Other things that we can do, and coming to the final part of my talk, you've seen that already in my first and second lecture. If you're not tired of that, I'll repeat. <coughs> Something interesting is happening with this, um, this Ophia Comawenti, his name was a brittle star that changes color during the day and during the night black during the day, white during the night, and it's done through transport of pigment through the porous network. It helps it's to optimize the, um, the acceptance of, of light to the photoreceptors, and it's a wonderful system. And I again want to combine this lesson with butterflies, and marry um, butterflies and uh, brittle stars. And what I want to do then and to come back to this image that I have already shown in the last two lectures and remind you that butterflies are super hydrophobic for water, but they, are, they can be wet by alcohol or other things. But let me remind you again that this is structural color. So the fact that it's wet, it now changes refractive index contrast, and these structures are now getting um, really um, changing their color. For example, if we have our system, if it's in air, it has a beautiful color. The moment liquids gets in, you lose the color. Take a look at what is happening in these things. And what we do, really, is we functionalize our colloids with diff different chemistries in different locations. So the liquids that we use would go to some places but not others. And in this way, the places that are wet with the liquid would actually lose their structural color, and the those that are not penetratable by liquids will stay with high contracts and have the, the same iridescence as before. So in this way, you saw that we were creating the beautiful sea animals of different kinds. You can use all kinds of chemistries. We're chemists. We can do a lot. 
we need to think about it also in terms of physics. The fact that you have pores and then windows between the pores. So the liquid not only has to wet this surface, but it has to overcome this, this corner. There is much more than just simply chemistry that controls this wetting behavior. So the outcome of that is that certain pores would be filled, others will not, and the way we can now deal with that is to create a strips that depending which liquid you put inside, different words will appear or disappear on the surface. So this is a butterfly that was um, tattooed with letters U-S-A-F, which means U.S. Air Force was funding the work. Um, so you can use it for many things, and it's reversible. Depending on the number of stripes, you can tell um, whether it's water or acetone or isopropanol. You could see that it's an extremely fast uh, process. So you dry it, you see nothing anymore, you will put it in another liquid, and it will show something else. So you can use it for discrimination of liquids. You can actually discriminate a lot, especially if you use combinatorial chemistry, and actually just two different chemistries in your uh, optical system is sufficient to see the effect. I'll skip that part, and I will show you another two. You can make your chemistry responsive to something. Let's say I want to use it for anti-tempering applications. You can have um, functionalization of your porous structure such that depending, in this particular case, in UV exposure. Let's say you have a sensitive drug that is not supposed to see light. As it will see light, it's wetting characteristic changes. So from the way uh, it will show you whether there is a dose of light that it was experiencing during uh, transport and so. Other things, uh, there's many things that we do um, with these surfaces. I'll show you just a couple. You probably saw that very different things are appearing, disappearing, depending which liquid you do. This is in School of Design. They decided to design it into form of, of uh, bath, uh, uh, just to have a nice wall in the bathtub. If, when you're taking shower, it shows patterns, then it dries and goes away. Um, this is really, you don't even know there is an H letter inside these structures. But more importantly, really, is that uh, we can use it for discrimination, for example, of oil. And to tell, and there is more and more oil transportation these days that goes through railway. And we do know uh, that there are blow-ups of these trains all the time due to the inability to detect or define the packing group of the oil that is taken every day from, let's say, North Dakota side. So trying to think about it, for example, in this case, as an application for detection as a simple strip that can tell you whether to put it in one type or another type of the quality of oil. So with that, 
indeed all about oil, but also, let me finish, and actually it's my last slide because I want to thank you. We drink a lot. And everybody in my group has their own glass with whatever they want to appear, with their own drinks that they like. And this is in particular the company that was uh, started that shows V for Validere, or you use something else, it will show the name of the company. But I think it's the best example ever for those of you who love chess. These are shot glasses. Color comes from size of colloidal spheres. But you have no idea which piece that is, and you will only know by pouring the right liquid inside, and then you can play. So with that, I want to say really thank University of Oxford for um, giving me the pleasure and honor of Hinshelwood uh, lectureship. Of course, I want to thank my group that is working a lot, whether it's cold or hot, and I want to thank you for your attention. <laughs>